What's going on, Download fans? This is Alex Timms. Hope you guys had a great new year and holiday season. But here on the Dale Jr. Download, we are extremely excited for 2023. We have a lot of great guests lined up for this year, some new segment ideas, and a lot of other cool things I think you guys are going to really enjoy. And speaking of new things, a brand new episode of Next Level with Andrew Curland is out now. Andrew sat down with legendary broadcaster Ken Squire to discuss his Hall of Fame career and much more. Make sure you go over to the Next Level podcast and hit subscribe so you never miss another episode. But now, without further ado, here's the brand new episode of Andrew Curlin's Next Level Conversation with Ken Squire. This is a production of Dirty Mo Media. It's all come down to this. Out of turn two, Donnie Allison in first. Where will Kale make his move? He comes to the inside. Donnie Allison throws the block. Kale hits him. He slides. With what looked like a prepared finish, <laughs> how do you put together something and you bring Richard Petty home first? So all of that played a part in giving you a Americana kind of finish that you couldn't have expected. Who is going to win it? Two cars are out. In the backstretch are the leaders. Come back on stage for one more round. And they really got after each other. And there's a fight between Kale Yarbrough and Donnie Allison. The tempers overflowing. They're angry. They know they have lost. It took a perfect storm to propel NASCAR into quite literally the next level of entertainment in America. You needed heroes, villains, but above all, something for people to talk about. The 1979 Daytona 500 cooked up quite the storm and left millions of new fans watching at home hungry for more. The two men on the call that day were none other than Ken Squire and David Hobbs. Today, we will hear stories from both of them as we relive the legendary 1979 Daytona 500 with the two voices that kept all of America on the edge of their seats. Hello everybody, my name is Andrew Curl and welcome to a very special edition of Next Level with Ken Squire and his booth mate, David Hobbs. We will hear from both of them as I mentioned and we're going to relive that 1979 Daytona 500 finish. That is all we're going to talk about today. So buckle up. This was recorded right at the beginning of day two. Um, We had kind of started talking about the 1979 Daytona 500 on the first day, but if you listen to last week's episode, then we started talking about Susie the Bear and Kale Yarbrough stories. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, I highly recommend it. So we regrouped. And day two, I wanted to start with something good right from the get-go, so we jumped right into the 1979 Daytona 500. We had an iPad in front of Ken, and we actually showed him the finish, so he got to relive it while we were watching it as well, and um, I'll tell you, I've been really fortunate to do a lot of cool things in this sport, 
that was up there for one of the coolest that I've done to sit next to the guy. I mean, I memorized that call growing up as a kid. You know, every February before the Daytona 500, I watched that finish and the fight that happened afterwards. It's ingrained in my memory and to pick the brain and hear firsthand from the voice that called the action was unbelievable. And then to get David Hobbs and I I dialed him up on the phone uh, or actually via Zoom and chatted with him about mostly the 1979 Daytona 500 to hear his perspective. And his perspective is cool because that final call is at least the last lap is mostly Ken Squire. And you're going to hear me ask David um, in our conversation a little bit like, what was Ken's facial reaction? Because you hear Ken's voice, but I feel like only David Hobbs and maybe some of the other people, if there were other people in the booth, actually saw Ken Squire's reaction in the moment. And he describes what Ken's face was like calling that iconic race. And honestly, if I'm David Hobbs, what do you watch more? Do you watch Ken Squire, who's having this unbelievable call, or do you watch the action that is just as good on the track? I'm sure he probably did a little bit of double duty there, but uh, this is a really special episode. We have the booth from that race coming up. You're going to hear from Ken Squire first, then we're going to cut to our conversation with David Hobbs, and uh, that's all I can say about it. Everyone, you're in for a treat. I can't wait for you to relive the 1979 Daytona 500 with me. This is the 1979 Daytona 500, the last lap, an important one, and I'll play you, uh, you were on the call. Maybe you can walk me through it after watching it. Will Kale make his move? He comes to the inside. Donnie Allison throws the block. Kale hits him. He slides. Donnie Allison slides. They hit again. They climb in the turn. They're hitting the wall. They're head on the wall. They slide down to the inside. Let's watch those third place cars. They're out of it. Who is going to win it? Two cars are out. In the backstretch are the leaders. Watching for the leaders to They're still up in turns three and four. The leaders are up in turns three and four. Coming down, Richard Petty is now pulling out in front. Darrell Waltrip is in second. A.J. Boyd is in third. Here they come. Waltrip trying to slingshot. Petty is out in front at the line. Waltrip to the inside. Petty wins it. And, and there's a fight between Cale Yarborough and Donnie Allison. The tempers overflowing. They're angry. They know they have lost. And what a bitter defeat. A couple of very hard men. Very hardly upset. So to watch that live, <laughs> what's going through your head in that final final lap? Well, to start that <laughs> on CBS with what looked like a prepared finish, <laughs> how do you put together something and you bring Richard Petty home first, yeah. who was the representative to much of America and still today, the Petty family? Get him in front. I know. And you've got that Daryl Waltrip right there. Yeah. Young guy looking good and really trying. But behind that was the whole Allison story, which is a family out of Florida. 
mm-hmm. originally, and they moved up to Alabama. And the Alabama gang was created out of what they were and are today. So all of that played a part in giving you a Americana kind of finish that you couldn't have expected nor anticipated as it came out. In fact, AJ was running fifth or below the front five. Yeah. And he called into his crew chief and said, where are we? And he told him that they were fifth or sixth. And he says, how much does that pay? And the guy gave him a number and he said, okay. And he stayed there. A lot of people still think that A.J. Foyt could have won that race. And he was not willing to pull out and fool around with those guys. And you saw what happened to the two that were the eventual story of the race. That was that was magic. Yeah. It was just magic. And it was the kind of thing that Bill France really understood. And there they were with an Indianapolis champion, you know, and it was fun to do, and it's always fun to see. I'll tell you something. The race was over, and CBS had spent an outlandish amount of money to put that on. It was the first time, and everything that could happen had happened. And uh, it had rained in the morning. We almost lost it that day. Huh. For two hours, we waited. We got it in, got it over. And you have this lollapalooza of a finish, right? And then the principals in the story come back on stage for one more round. And they really got after each they other. Did. And probably for rightful reasons. <laughs> but it made that story of that race. And that, as much as the finish at the very first race, Daytona 500, was something that got in people's minds and they couldn't get rid of. It, you talk about a, a perfect finish and and that first Daytona 500 being the photo finish, great start for Big Bill. And now the first flag to flag Daytona 500 finish ends like that. Are you thinking this is this is great. This is gonna help propel the sport into no. a new level. You weren't. No, I was trying to stay ahead of what was going on. <laughs> yeah. And what had happened was you had those top runners all together. And there was another car out there painted with the same colors, Buddy Arrington. Yeah. And uh, when they lost the principles down the backstretch and into the wall, the search was for the leader. Yeah. And they started to pick up this car running by itself, actually several laps down. And so some of that call was trying to be a spotter to tell them where the leader was. Yeah. Because he was still, that was still a tremendous battle among those cars. And uh, they got it right, and they brought the right car against the line. But that that was a moment. And uh, that's about all I thought about was, you know, you didn't want someone that wasn't a principal in it being involved as if he was. Nice guy, too. <laughs> I heard they were going to take the blimp camera down in turn three where the accident was, but, but- Yeah, yeah, and and I had a partner who went down as a spotter and worked in the, in the uh, truck, and he realized what was going on, and he saw them 
searching. I mean, here you had five cars together running for first place at the end of 500 miles. Good enough when it was three in that first time that we really got to know about Daytona. We got to the right cars, but there was a shaky moment in that finish as they were coming around, turn into the backstretch behind the incident mm -hmm. that, that we were going to bring somebody across the line that wasn't in there. We're still trying, but it was two or three laps down. But that's what made Daytona really work. That what we said that kind of racing could be was indeed what it was. Nothing more, nothing less. And that last lap was just unbelievable. And what a way to start this Daytona image of American stock car racing. I think... 15 million people or so tuned into the broadcast. There was a snowstorm up north that kept everyone inside their homes watching this race on television. But before the race, Big Bill blacked the race out in a lot of markets. How many people did you think were going to end up watching this race? And were you surprised by the number that it ended up being? We didn't have any idea. Yeah. But that, that business of he sold tickets Bill France, and the idea that that something could interfere with that was in his mind, and he did himself a favor and gave us this incredible finish. And certainly, they were contenders, five strong, toward the end of the race. Got down to the two, fighting for the, and they had had at it earlier in the day, so. Uh, you just had to follow the dots. <laughs> Let's now jump into my conversation with David Hobbs and hear the other side of the story of the 1979 Daytona 500. Of course, as you know, it was an incredible... It wasn't a bad race until the end, of course, when... Uh, <laughs> Cale Yarbrough and, and Donnie Allison were leading by a long way. And they were just cruising around in front, pulling away from the rest of the field. Then, of course, on the last lap, Donnie made the move. Cale shut him off. And they, next thing is they're down in the dirt. Then they're both in the, up in the wall at turn three. And, of course, they spin down. And then the fight starts. Meanwhile, Richard Petty, who was a very distant third, comes home and wins the Daytona 500 for God knows how many times, fifth, sixth, seventh, whatever. Uh, Bobby Allison is like second or third. So on the slowing down lap, he goes around and he joins in the fray. And Ken and I, <laughs> calling this to the booth, you know, it's just, Ken, of course, is just going berserk. You know, he can hardly get the words out quick enough while his fight's going on. And uh, you know the story, there was a big blizzard in the Northeast and all across the north, Northern Tier. And, um, so we had a huge audience, which, of course, CBS weren't expecting at all. We had like about six million viewers or something, beat everything else in sports completely. So, um, so that put them on the map. And, um, and I stayed with them for another, till 1995. You mentioned the fight and, you know, everything goes 
Ken goes crazy. What What is your reaction at the time? Are you watching the fight? I mean, obviously you can hear Ken's reaction, but did you look over and, and see his facial expressions at all? Absolutely. I mean, he was just lappy. I mean, he loved it because old Ken likes anything that's controversial. So he was he just lapped this up. He thought it was fantastic. And uh, but it was it, it was it was a hell of an opening for for uh, CBS and of course for NASCAR because I mean that that race basically put NASCAR on the map and they've never looked back. I mean, nowadays, I don't know what we paid for the rights for the race, probably 50 grand or something. Now, you know, NASCAR get $4 billion a year from NBC and $4 billion a year, well, 10 years, sorry, $4, $4 billion over 10 years from NBC and $4 billion a year from Fox. So, I mean, they've never had so much money. Um, and of course, the teams lapped it up. Suddenly, they got nationwide recognition, and uh, of course, people like Daryl Waltrip really milked that through his career. And then, of course, afterwards on Fox. Um, so, I mean, and I mean, I always say that <laughs> CBS, I mean, NASCAR should be paying Ken, you know, <laughs> a couple of million dollars a year retainer because I mean, he made he made them. It was, his, it was his tenacity. I mean, he just pushed and pushed and pushed. At CBS until they finally, oh, okay, well, we'll send Clarence down and see what he thinks. And, uh, you know, and it, yeah. I mean, you know, the old rest is history is a bit of a cliche, but I mean, it's absolutely true. You talk about how hard he fought and like, you know, his dream came true when you got that flag to flag race in 79. How, how hard did he actually push to get NASCAR on the map for CBS for, you know, how many years? Well, I mean, he was pushing when I first joined in 76. So how long he'd been pushing before that, I don't yeah. know. Um, because he was the uh, CBS sports, main sports guy. Uh, and obviously he'd been pushing for a long time. And because um, now Bill France, big Bill, wasn't that keen. He, he just saw it as losing spectators at the gate. Uh, and of course, hmm. one of the few mistakes he made, because in, in fact... After that, I mean, he had it blacked out in Florida. He had it blacked out in Georgia. It was blacked out in Alabama, um, blacked out in South Carolina. And um, he, he he wasn't very sure this was just a good idea because we'd lose Gator tennis. But, of course, it bumped Gator tennis at the next race enormously because suddenly everybody had heard of it. <laughs> I mean, it made a hell of a difference. So, I mean, their Gates, ever since then, have, have been out. I mean, at, going down a bit now but i mean been outstanding you mentioned how he blacked out all the races and like a lot of prominent spots where you think there would be nascar fans so with that the, the race is going on how many people do you think in your mind were actually watching it because you didn't know about the snowstorm until after right no we we didn't we we just assumed it would have sort of very peripheral coverage i think cbs thought Maybe if maybe a million people watch it or three quarters of a million, it'll be worthwhile. Um, the production cost was pretty hard by those days' standards. We had a lot of cameras. I mean, they did a really good, they did a really good job with the, they had a good crew. Um, the uh, producer and director were Mike Fishman and, uh, uh, yeah, Mike, two Mike Fishman and Pearl. Mike Pearl was the uh, producer, Mike Fishman was the director. And we had high cameras and we had all sorts of stuff. <clears throat> um, but, of course, we, um, we didn't have any in-car cameras. 
And obviously after that race, then they started to really add cameras and, and uh, you know, CBS had the rights for quite, a, well, I don't know how long, it was a couple of years or so. And of course, people like ESPN and TNT and everybody else couldn't wait to get uh, a few races themselves. So, I mean, it really did make a hell of a difference in NASCAR. I heard on a podcast that you guys went to a restaurant around Daytona after the race. Um, and that's kind of where you found out everything that happened. You kind of debriefed and kind of soaked it all in. What was what was that like? And just talking through the day and really figuring out how significant the race you just called was. Well, every year we used to have an after the race party um, in Daytona. The first year we went to a restaurant down Route 1 or, yeah, Route One, which I don't think is there anymore. It's quite a nice restaurant. We um, down the hatch. We all got uh, really uh, into it, and of course we're all slapping each other on the back, and everybody's making speeches. And uh, you know, Mike Pearl made a speech, and Mike Christie made a speech, and I made a speech, and uh, we're all congratulating ourselves. But I, and I don't think even then I'm not sure that they, obviously they hadn't had the overnights by then because it's still only like seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night. Uh, but I'm sure the next morning, I don't remember much about the next morning in particular in terms of euphoria. Everybody said, Jesus, do you see how many people watch this race? But I mean, I know Ken felt very, very vindicated by it. So there you have it. The perspectives of both of the people who were there for that iconic 1979 Daytona 500 finish. Uh, there's so much to unpack. I love. I want to go quickly to David Hobbs because that's what we heard more recently. And uh, I think one of my favorite quotes from him uh, is he says, "You know, he loved it. He he was uh, he was enjoying himself because you know, O Ken enjoys anything that's controversial." And uh, I thought that was a funny David Hobbs quote, and it was. A wild finish, and as a play-by-play broadcaster, those are the moments you live for. And boy, did Ken Squire capitalize on it. I hope you guys enjoyed this one as much as I did, and we will be having a video series coming soon featuring, and you can see Ken's face as he tells the stories that you heard, not only today, but the previous couple of episodes and the next episodes that you're going to hear Um, and we're going to be getting everyone set for the 2023 Daytona 500 with those clips coming before you know it but let's jump ahead and take a look at what is coming next on our conversation with Ken Squire it's the birth of MRN and uh, this was this was a fun conversation because this came up a few times off air when me and Ken and his daughter Ashley were sitting and chatting and Ken was very excited to tell me what the first office of MRN in Daytona Beach, Florida looked like and it's a funny story and we did get it Um, but it's not what you think an office is if you can actually call it an office that's all I'm going to say and a whole lot more coming next week on Next Level thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this one. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, also be sure to hear the full conversation because this is it. I mean, there is little to no cutting out of the interview and that we had with Ken. I mean, honestly, the cutting out is when we actually had to just stop recording and change batteries. That's all, that's all the editing I'm doing. You're basically hearing the raw interview 
in its entirety, and um, we're going to hear more of it next week. Thanks for tuning in. Check out Dirty Mo Media on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Dirty Mo. Dirty Mo.